Daniel Lajoie. I am Dan Lajoie, the host of The Weird. With me this week is my host, my co-host, Riley. Riley. Bonjour, c'est Riley Stewart, ici, au micro. That's all I got. You, you're not bilingual? No, but I have a really good accent. Yeah, so recently, I think you were the one who shared it. There's a video that has resurfaced of an Italian singer from the 1970s where he sang in gibberish gibberish but, but yes. made it sound english yeah just because he wanted to prove that the italians would listen to anything if they thought it was american is that was that the the point behind it yeah he's making he's he's making it sound like he's speaking american because he knew that the italian public would immediately love the song even though they didn't know what it was like what they were singing about the song is actually catchy it is very catchy and i've now seen two different videos of it one At the production on the videos. Oh, my God. Well, right. There's one that's set in a classroom, mm-hmm. and it's cool. It's very colorful and all yeah, that. Yeah, I'm talking about the black and white one. That, looks that like... one is through the roof. One of the best. It looks like a fucking Super Bowl halftime show. It's incredible. I know. And with the mirrors and everything, like, and, and it is stunning. I love the 60s for production numbers. You don't see shit like that anymore. They just, it's not the same because it, it's not that era, but those numbers are amazing. So all that to say, I've actually been doing that, doing that for years where I pretend to speak French mm-hmm. and I'm mumbling, but I can, I've tricked French people into thinking that I'm speaking French. Well, we don't want to piss off all our Quebec listeners. Well, I'm, I'm, I don't know that we have any. Oh, I'm sure we do. I'm a la joie. I am. Yeah, the joy. Uh, and it's an old Acadian name. And maybe I've talked about this before. The Acadians were some of the first settlers in Canada from the the uh, from France. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that family started arriving in the 1600s. They've been around for a long, long time. And my family, my immediate family, my father is uh, French Canadian. My brother is has raised his family uh, French. My sister went through school uh, like through the French system. She's kind of lost it now because she married that German guy that you're enthralled with. But she's also really old. You know, when this whole COVID thing is over, you're going to have to watch your back because if she sees you. <laughs> I... No, wait a minute. No, no. We got to back the car up. So your brother is French? Yeah, first. French first. Your brother? Yes. Well, then what happened to you? Well, it's a long story, but I, um, I started off in the same track as them. I started off going to French school and... I had a terrible incident with my kindergarten teacher, Madame Desjardins. She threatened to cut out my tongue with, and did this several times, cut out my tongue if I spoke English in her classroom. And she would take scissors out of her drawer and brandish them. 
Are you serious? Yeah, this went on for a few months. I was four years old. I used to complain to my mom about having a sore throat and all, like a lot. I missed a lot of school. My mom was sure that there was something wrong with my tonsils, you know. And finally, um, I guess what ended up being the last visit for that reason with my pediatrician, he ended up, I don't remember this, but he ended up asking to speak to me alone. And I told him, I told him the truth, what was happening. And then he brought my mom in and I shared it with my mom. I was terrified that I was going to get hurt if I told. So that teacher ended up being confronted and she admitted to it. I was pulled from the school. I was told, my parents were told basically to keep me home for the rest of the year because I was traumatized. I ended up going to the following year to a new school in a new school board. It was the English Catholic school board. And I was terrified of school, petrified to the point where I, in class, inside the school, I wouldn't speak. I was very scared of making a mistake. I was in French immersion. I wouldn't talk. I wouldn't uh, participate at all. The teachers, and this this went on for two years, in grade one, they confronted my mom again. This time they, they, they told my mom, and this is a quote from back then, this would have been, what, 1982, that they thought I was retarded and maybe deaf. Oh, my God. So I was tested and was neither of those things. And so, and the psychologist that had done the testing said, you need to pull him out of that school because they're destroying him. And I do remember this. I do remember feeling really stupid and really scared. And uh, so I ended up being pulled out and ended up in a, in a school that uh, did not have immersion and just did core French. So it would have like one period a day of French. And at home, we would speak. There was French at home, but we were very bilingual, like lots of English, lots of French. So I lost it. I lost it over the years. I, my, my comprehension is, is good. It's okay. I had no confidence in speaking it. I can make myself sound like I can, but that's, that's why. So I'm very much the black sheep of my family. My children are in immersion. They're learning to speak it. You know, my Irish Canadian wife is fluently uh, French and English, like she's bilingual, works in both languages. And I'm the, the, I'm the, the lone wolf. What a sad story. I'm so bummed now. Right. So part two of our 25th episode, which is really our 26th episode. Is called Childhood Trauma. Yeah. Episode, the 25th episode was, a you know, bathroom fecal matter. Talk, on the wall. Yeah. On the wall. And this one is about childhood trauma. Oh, yeah. Oh, that is so dark. Yeah. It's shaped me... Um, who I am today for better and for worse oh. for better and for worse. Oh my God. Yeah. It's, oh, well, it's one of the, bit, that's a bit of a gut wrenching story. It's one of the reasons why I've gone into education. One of the reasons that was a motivator. Okay. I, I had a lot of negative experiences in school. I was not one of these kids who thought he was going to be a teacher. Uh-huh. I did not love school at all until maybe late high school. When I found improv. It's so funny because I wrote somebody a letter yesterday, um, believe it or not, trying to justify my music taste. And I was talking about that same thing. I was talking about I never found my tribe until maybe I was 16, 15 or 16. Before that, I was like this lone person who would just sit in the library against the wall and read science fiction books and draw. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm Mm-hmm. It's interesting because I bet like, because I would not have expected you to be introverted and you would not expect me to be introverted, but I was a super introverted child. 
I could see. I, I absolutely do see that, though. But I wouldn't have expected that from you either. But I, I, can, I can see it as well, though, because you have a very kind of innocence about you. I'm funny. I, I do thrive off social interaction, but I also like to have my space and my time away. I'm that way, too. You know what, too? If I'm at a party where I don't know anybody, I just kind of stand there. Right. Which yeah. takes a certain level of confidence. No, but I just, I, I'm not very secure around people I don't know. See, I'll do, I'll go out and I'll talk to people, but I'll be exhausted. Oh. Like my, that brother-in-law that you, that you love so much. Well, he's fascinating. He's fascinating. He's kind of like the, he's the Bear grills of your family. If he's listening, he'll love that. And I, I God bless, I love younger men who aren't af- afraid to marry an older woman. He's older than her. <laughs> I just really, I'm just going to keep perpetuating that man. Oh, that's so fun. In fact, I think he's close to your age. Oh, oh, so he's quite old. He's pretty much a senior citizen. Yeah. Well, I get a senior discount now in certain businesses. Did you know that I get a discount for being friends with you because you're so old? It's a, it's a new program. Adopt a senior. You get discounts on teaching supplies, right? Because you're a teacher? We, it's a tax deductible that every year I forget to claim right. because I don't save my receipts. You know, I didn't know until I had interacted on a deeper level with a lot of my teacher friends how much of out-of-pocket you guys spend on teaching supplies. Everything. It's absurd. Everything. I mean, not, well, not everything. You're not, you're not buying your... Photocopy paper. Yeah, you're not buying that, but you are buying your pens and pencils. I used to have to buy my own chalk. Uh, anything like anything in your office to make it a workable space now that I, I now I work out of an office I'm not in a classroom anymore anything that I use in that office space is um is like I I, I buy right the uh, wireless mouse I use and the lighting and the chair and it's mine blows my mind blows my mind okay blow my mind more all right my friend so this is part two of our exploration of Area 51. And like you, there's so there are so many things that we could talk about. I had to zero in on, in my case, one. Well, Area 51 is like fucking Stonehenge. There's a million associated legends with Area 51. Like there's so many tangents you can take. Which we have right? to do, by the way. Stonehenge? We need to do Stonehenge at some point. Cool, I'd love it. I don't know that much about it. Well, and you, you just claimed you knew that there's so many legends. I know. Uh, uh, there's so much about Stonehenge. I know, I'm teasing you. But this one, this one for me uh, is my favorite. The one that I'm going to be sharing with you today. Mm-hmm. And it ties in really well with the things you were talking about last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the aliens and with government conspiracy and cover-up. Beautiful. All right. So what I wanted to talk about today's episode is bob lazar of course heard of bob lazar of course area 51 you do a search you're gonna hit bob lazar i first heard of him a couple summers ago listening to a podcast going up to a cottage and they were talking about him and how interesting of a figure he is and and but i didn't i didn't retain all that information i didn't remember and then i started diving in on him and i was blown away cool all right so blow us away one of the, the, this was a really interesting research project too, because it was the, one of the f- first times I was able to pull most of my information from the primary source, from him, from the interviews that he's given. Brilliant. There is a great 
great, great documentary on Netflix called Bob Lazar, Area 51 and Flying Saucers mm-hmm. by Jeremy Corbell. That is, if you're interested in this, you've got to watch it. I will, absolutely. Okay, and it's it's beautifully produced. It's well-produced, and I think very fair. It's not like one of these cheesy shows that you would watch on History Network or Discovery Channel. or Yeah, where they really embellish, yeah. Well, and they don't ask any of the, the questions that naturally pop up, like, yeah, but what it like... This guy does. Did you ever notice too on those kind of documentaries you're talking about, whenever they do the dramatizations, you can tell like the actors that they use oh are like God. non-union. Of course. Like the acting talent is so bad. Of course. I did actually watch. Um, I was thinking in addition to what I what I read and, and, uh, and watched, I started watching one of those shows. I think it was called Com- Conspiracy Theories or something. Yeah. It's so bad. Oh, I can't oh. do it. There are podcasts that do that too, where they have like little vignettes where it sounds like, you know, like a scripted moment from the story they're talking about. Mm-hmm. And it's just so awkward. We should do we should do a separate podcast where we do really awful scripted mm-hmm. oh, oh, great just, love stories and they and always have reenact awful, the different parts and they have music behind them and they're always like squirm inducing <laughs> all right so who is Bob Lazar I'm asking you oh God oh God all right well no, do you want me I, to answer no I I know because I asked that and then I made it I'm just trying to throw you off all right Bob Lazar Riley was born on January 26, 1959, in Cora Gables. From a young age, he had an affinity for technology. Prior to all his controversial claims, he built a jet car that was capable of going up to 200 miles per hour. Wow. He did that as a teenager, like a young kid, like a kid. Yeah, he was in science club. Oh my God. Clearly an innovative mind, Lazar claimed to have worked as a physicist at Los Alamos National Laboratory in his 20s, where he helped to work on a particle accelerator. From there, he was supposedly recruited to a secretive government base known as S-4 near Area 51 via a third-party company called EGNG. Okay, how come in my research I never came across S-4? Because you weren't researching this. Weird. Okay. It's a it's a relatively from what what little is known of it. Uh huh. I don't think it's it's as old as Area Fifty One, and it is a subsidiary of Area Fifty One. Wow. So okay. in last week's episode, I mentioned a person. Uh huh. That was Bob Lazar. So Bob Lazar would be flown to Area Fifty One every day, and then bust from that base, that airfare in that windowless bus. In that windowless bus. Oh. That's him. Oh, man. He says that nine flying saucers were being flown and analyzed at S4. He worked specifically in propulsion and power source. And specifically, he worked on what he called an antimatter reactor. And that's tech that does not exist at all. And I'll go into that in more detail later. Antimatter. Ooh, it's like Star Trek. Very, very much so. Claim, he claims that the ships uh, were either flown, if they could be, or they were taken apart and analyzed. He also says that the U.S. government recovered these craft in the late 1980s. So these weren't the craft that you sort of had mentioned um, in the previous episode. So like, these weren't not, Roswellian. 
They're not Roswellian. Ooh. He does not know where they come from. He has gone on to explain many times that everything there is compartmentalized. No one knows what anyone else is doing. So he doesn't know where they crashed. He knows nothing about that. Sort of. And I'll, I'll, a little bit. You'll see in a moment. There is, there's one part of this story that goes counter completely to that, but then there might be a really good reason why. Okay. Well, and, and actually here's that part. I didn't, fuck. He also claims to have read U.S. government briefing documents that described alien involvement in human affairs over the past 10,000 years. Apparently he was shown this document, this briefing book, like on his first day. Whoa. Okay. Okay. So some of the things that this briefing doc uh, talked about, it, it described these extraterrestrial beings uh, who were uh, gray aliens from a planet orbiting the twin binary star system, Zeta Reticuli. Oh, there it is again. Can I just say, imagine it's your first day at work and you're given a little binder to read. And usually on your first day at work, that binder is going to mention things like how to you know, request leave. Wash your hands. Yeah, and how, how the organization works and things like that. No, you crack it open and it's all about the existence of fucking aliens. Just imagine that. There's more to it too, what started happening apparently on his first day of work. There was some really messed up stuff. Lead on. So as of September, 2019, no extrasolar planets have been found in the Zeta Reticuli system. So there is no, we have not verified that there are actual uh, planets in that uh, in that system. But that doesn't mean that they're not there because it's hard to, to see sometimes when they're that far away. It's kind of far, yeah. He also says he read in that same document that aliens have manipulated our genetics. This is a quote of Bob. 65 or 63 corrections or additions to the genetic makeup that finally resulted in a human creature. Allegedly, this interaction has occurred since humankind was a simian creature. Oh, I've never heard that origin of our species legend before. That they've been playing with our DNA for thousands of years. Oh, wow. And um, we're the product now of genetic manipulation. There's a Star Trek The Next Generation episode kind of like this. Well, and it's a bit like... Um, uh, Battlestar Galactica. Yeah, yeah, That we yeah. are here because of uh, aliens. Did you ever see the Next Generation episode where it's all the different races? Like the Romulans and everybody are all being lured to one planet and you find that they all originated from one species that are oh, now wow. gone? No, I don't remember that. It's a really good episode. Yeah. I, I, Every now and then, Star Trek's writing would knock it out of the park. That was a great show. I, I, I did watch it when it was on TV, but I've never... It's not like one of those things I've religiously... It's not like Star Wars where I can tell you like really fine details i didn't love it as much okay bob gave an interview to a local las vegas tv news show with his identity hidden in may of 1989 bob feared for his life after giving the interview and eventually went public as an insurance policy to protect himself and his family his neighbor and friend mario santa cruz claims he was with bob twice when he was threatened one of those times uzis were pulled on them while driving on the highway the people with the guns looked official, according to Mario, and Mario backs Bob's claim that he went forward and revealed his identity to save his life. Wow. Okay. I love a good witness. The government claims, however, that he never worked for them, ever. Of course they do. Even Bob's college alma maters have no record of him attending. 
In fact, there's almost no record of Bob existing at all. Oh, boy. Okay. So it's kind of like, oh, yeah, it's like they just went back and erased his past on him, right? And I'll get into that a little bit more it's later. It's like that movie, The Net, with Sandra Bullock. I never saw that movie. Oh, it's a really good movie. Watch it. It's great. It's great. Okay. It's fun. No, and this time, uh, when I say I will get into that later, I mean it. Because it's not the next bullet on my in my notes. <laughs> Bob's mother would disagree with the notion that he never existed or that he didn't do the things that he said he did. Right. She says that from a young age, Bob worked on jet engines and was constantly tinkering with technology. Both uh, Bob's wife and his mother say that he's a really good person and an extremely honest person. Well, and why the hell would a smart person live in Las Vegas? Like, what's he doing there? He's either working at the military base or what? He's a showgirl? Like, seriously. Well, actually, you say that. What would a really well-educated physicist be doing in Las Vegas? Well, I mean, people will say that he's not a physicist. He's a con artist. Oh, for God's sake. Okay. Okay. Did they? T- hey, has anybody tested him? Yes. Oh, I love this. I'll get okay. into that. When he was working out of Las Vegas, his wife actually thought he was having an affair because he couldn't talk at all about where he worked, what he was doing, and he worked strange hours. So she was convinced that he was up to no good. Well, of course. Both his mom and his wife, and again, this is actually from some interviews, have stated they just want him to be safe. And they're hoping that some of these public appearances he makes, and he doesn't make many, uh, are going to ensure that he isn't eventually wiped out. Well, yeah, because once you're in the public eye, it's very difficult to just whisk you off, right? That's right. In May of 1989, Bob appeared in an interview with investigative reporter George Knapp on Las Vegas TV station KLAS under the pseudonym Dennis and with his face hidden to discuss his purported employment at S4, a facility he claimed exists near the Nellis Air Force Base installation known as... Area 51. Wow. So this is the what I mentioned earlier. George broke the Bob Lazar story. He is a respected and award-winning journalist who took on the story in the late 1980s. Initially, he was very skeptical, and before airing the story, he did extensive, extensive background work to make sure Bob was who he claimed to be. He spent eight months verifying Bob's claims while he met sh- many strange roadblocks, he felt in the end that Bob was telling the truth. Eight months. Eight months. Oh, wow. That's like, yeah, that's significant. That's like master's thesis. And I say he he is a respected journalist, but he's lost credibility as a result of his doggedness with this story. Wow. Right? He's he's had to pay a price of course. for reporting it. Yeah. And he's not sensational. I've listened to his interviews and... And the questions that he asks, he he's not giving Bob a free ride. In fact, they kind of have a funny relationship, the two the two of them together. Like he's nice and fair and balanced and just kind of, mm-hmm. it's not like Joe Rogan. Well, if Joe likes you, Joe talked to Bob Lazar as well. That's another interview that I listened to. Oh, he did? Yes. I fucking hate Joe Rogan. Joe uh, is a big believer in Bob Lazar. Okay. Bob doesn't like to talk about the story. He has lost the life he used to have. Going public with this story hasn't brought him fame or fortune, but instead pain and misery. He didn't like the attention 
that he received after these initial set of interviews and went into a cocoon. Oh, dear. George Knapp says, Who are these visitors? Why are they here? What is the nature of reality? What is their interest in us? Where did they come from? Bob was closest to knowing the answers to those questions when he read those briefing docs. And we'll go into even more detail about those a little bit later. Awesome. So why did Bob spill the beans, Riley? Why did he, Dan? So the technology Bob worked on was out of this world, literally. It changed his life a lot and not in a positive way. He wishes now that he had never gone forward with his knowledge for a multitude of reasons. First of which, this is and this is one of the things that makes him credible in a way. He's not profited from this at all. Mm-hmm. He hates the spotlight. Different people that ta- have talked about him have said that he could command big bucks if he went on public speaking tours. Right. You know, Q and doing Q and A's and stuff. Like, he doesn't. He doesn't like to. He doesn't trust many people to talk about this. Well, I've seen his interview footage and he kind of has a nerdy, gentle, kind of Bill Gates vibe about him, right? He does. That's a very good way of describing it. He's not like a grandstandy kind of person at all. No. And um, he's even said in more recent interviews that he wishes he had never come forward because it would have meant that he could have still maybe been working on it. Ah. And he misses that. I get it. Because like he said, this is the greatest stuff ever. You're getting to look at him play with. And he had that taken away from him. The inciting incident for this whole story was an affair. Bob discovered in the late 80s that his wife was having one. And apparently his work discovered that too. Oh. He was told to get his home in order. They viewed that as a potential instability and not something something they wanted from their employees he was basically told either you fix your marriage or you end it but you can't you can't leave it as is and continue to work here jesus so he was actually told to stay home and figure this out you're not coming back until you figure this out during this time he claims they started following him the government did Mm mm-hmm This made him extremely nervous. And he felt, and this is a quote from an early interview, they're not going to let me go out and get a new job knowing what I know. Wow. Right? He Mm -hmm. was sort of looking at it in in that way. And this is when he started to tell, initially, just friends and family what he had been up to. Okay. So, So up to this point, no one knew what he did. He starts telling his wife and two very close friends. He did not think that it was beyond their capability to kill him, to stop him from sharing what he knew. And he felt like this gave him a bit of insurance if other people knew his story. On a Wednesday night in March 1989, he took his friends and family. It was uh, that comprised of his wife and best friends, Gene Huff and another friend, John Lear, to a highway near the base so that he could show them what was going on. And lo and behold, they saw flying ships. They recorded it. And that recording still exists. You can see it. But it's shitty 1980s, you know, camcorder quality. So you just sort of see flying lights in in the video. Uh, Can I ask you a quick question? Yeah. How did they get so close to the base? Interesting question. And I actually, I don't think I have this in my notes. So I don't think I'm going to talk about it later. There was one highway Mm -hmm. that ran near the base. Okay. And near as in like you could see things flying above the base, right? So the government had worked out that Wednesday nights in the middle of the night was the least trafficked 
day of the week on that stretch of highway and was when it was safest to take these ships out and to fly them. Mm -hmm. So he knew the schedule because he was there working. So he went out and showed his wife and friends, this is what I'm talking about. And they took a camcorder and videoed it, videotaped it. Okay, I, I have an issue with that. That's strange. Okay, what's your well, issue? Well, I with just it? don't imagine, I can't imagine that they would have been doing activities like that that close to people. To get caught flying what was obviously not Earth-created technology would be massive. Like, you'd think they would take more precautions. They have video footage of it, Riley. Mm-hmm. And it's not definitive. And no one, most people don't believe them. Yeah. Okay. So it's 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 one of those things that it's so out there and so land. I mean, they have to fly them. Right. Right. Yeah. Of course. And they're flying high, and they're they can be quite bright. Mm-hmm. These things, and they can also be invisible. Apparently, I understand your your the doubts you have about. Well, this. because when I was giving you my explanation last week of Area Fifty One, the stuff that they needed to do at Area Fifty One had to be far away from a civilian presence. And they made sure that they were nowhere near where anybody could see what was going on. The way he describes this too is that it uh, they couldn't they didn't stray very far from the base with these craft. They kind of would go up and and then kind of back to, like these are alien craft. They're not flying B two bombers right. designed for human beings. So I, I don't know. This is what he claims. On their third trip out, they got caught. Oh, he describes seeing the ship and then it seemed to see them and a green dot dropped from the ship, went to the ground, rolled towards them and stopped. And then all of a sudden they were surrounded by military oh, God. With night vision goggles. Oh, so they were escorted away, even though they were on a, on a highway. And the following day, he was summoned to Indian Springs Air Force Base. While there, they read out a transcript of his wife and her friend slash lover. Oh. Just to show him that they've been listening and they were aware. And I think to kind of rub it in and tell him, you know, where to go. He's not sure they knew what to do at that point. They grilled him about security details. Uh, They tried to figure out how much he had told people, who he had told. Mm -hmm. Uh, They really lectured him on how he could possibly bring people out there and show them what he did. Yeah, this is the dead of the night, right? Yeah. They apparently didn't like his responsiveness and eventually ended up pulling a sidearm on him and threatened to kill him right there and then, and then his friends and family. Oh my God. He was then put under constant surveillance. So his phones were tapped. He claims he was followed by land and by air, military air, uh, aircraft following him mm-hmm. when he was out driving. Mm-hmm. And it was then that he contacted George Knapp and did that that uh, disguised interview. And if you look at that interview, he's like in a van with the sun in the background. So it it just gives him a, a silhouette. And I even remember thinking this, watching it, going, that's kind of a shitty, like that's a shitty way to conceal your identity. Because you could see like the outline, he has these big glasses. Yeah, his glasses you can see yeah. the outline of his glasses. Like they're going to figure out really easily who this is. Why didn't he take his damn glasses off? Like no brainer. So after the first interview in which he was disguised, he was threatened more, and Bob felt like he had to reveal his identity to save his life. Okay. So he ended up doing a sit-down interview with George Knapp and spilled the beans, gave his name and, and everything else. He also felt at the time that this was scientific information the world deserved to know, as it could change our lives fundamentally, everything from economics, social care, 
warfare, construction, transportation, the environment, etc. And that it was not right that the government was hoarding this information. Mm-hmm. I personally, if this is true, I don't believe that was the driving force, though. This is no something he, he, he said early on in those early interviews. Uh-huh. I think he was doing it to protect himself. Okay, which is fair. What did Bob do at S4? Lazar alleges that S4 is a subsidiary installation and is located several kilometers south of the United States Air Force facility, popularly known as Area 51, and it is adjacent to Papoose Lake, much like Groom Lake isn't actually a lake. And I, too, thought, well, that sounds like a nice lake. Well, Papoose isn't Papoose. Papoose is an archaic name for indigenous baby, right? Well, I just thought it would be a good name for a summer camp. Papoose. I think it's probably one of those things where everybody says Papoose for a native baby, but it's only the word in one specific language, and so it's not cool. Yeah, probably. Papoose. I know there's a cider that's uh, made in um, this region called Wapoose. Wapoose. I've been to Wapoose. Where is it? It's in Prince Edward County on Lake Ontario, uh, near the Sandbanks Provincial Park. where the people with money have their cottages. Oh my God, yeah, there's some mansions there. So he claims to have reverse-engineered alien spacecraft. From day one, weird head games began. So remember we talked about that book that he saw that he was told to read. On top of that, everyday workers would be yelled at in what he called rhythmic yelling and were constantly threatened. There's been some speculation, not by him, but by others, that this was a form of hypnosis and control. Oh. He worked closely with something called element 115, a synthetic chemical element that is extremely radioactive. The interesting thing is it wasn't officially discovered until 2003 by a joint team of Russian and American scientists at the Joint Institute for Nuclear Research in Dubna, Russia. Okay. So when Bob claimed to be working with element 115, Mm -hmm. it didn't exist. Okay. Okay? Okay. Its existence was not known to the world when Bob initially brought it up. This element went in a controlled state, which, by the way, we still don't know how to artificially do, at least what they're telling us, was used as the power source or fuel for the spaceship that Bob worked on. Wow. He has described in perfect and accurate detail, what the S4 building looked like. Okay. So essentially, it's built into a mountain range Mm -hmm. and has these large hangar doors that sort of act as the roof slash walls Mm -hmm. that can be opened up. Uh, they, they They run at a 30 degree slope. They have this paint on them that looks like sand. He described all this back in 1989. No one knew this base existed. In so the base is built into the mountain? It's built into the mountain. So it's like that base in Star Wars where there's... In Hoth? No, it's the one where there's... um In that one of the last movies where there's that amazing... Oh, It's white, yeah. but then when you run over it, it's red. The Last Jedi. It's red underneath. Mm-hmm. And they have that amazing battle. And I think that's where Luke finally gives it up. Yes. Yes. With the with those little foxes that are made of like yeah, ice. I love that movie, by the way. I liked all the last three. Yeah. People are going to shit all over me for this, but I liked the Han Solo movie. I thought it was great. I did too. I had fun. I went in thinking it was going to be terrible and I loved Star it. Star Wars is supposed to be fun and it was fun. So there you go. This is, and this is where he gets really interesting. There are so many things that he has revealed over the years or back then that sounded crazy because there, and there was no proof. There was no evidence. 
that have been proven to be true. And that S, the description of S4 is one of them. Okay. That is what it looks like. Okay. So the ship that he worked on, he describes it as a saucer-like ship and he termed it the sports model. Okay. Apparently there were eight other craft, and but they were all different uh, shapes and sizes. So there were nine ships. He worked on one of them. The other eight, he can't really tell you anything about. He did, like he mentioned, one of them looked like a jello mold. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like he he can't, he's not going to give you any details about them because he never yeah. was allowed to work on them. I wonder if they were like squishy and organic inside, like Battlestar Galactica. Remember? Oh, yeah. They were all this weird, fleshy, organic. It was really. Yeah. I liked that because it was a, a view of the interior of a spacecraft we'd never seen before. Mm-hmm. He has provided extensive extensive descriptions of the ship and has been able to reproduce intricate drawings of its design aspects. He explained that the craft was split into two main levels. The reactor was positioned at the center of the upper level with an antenna extending to the top, which is also where the ship's computers or what he's he sort of called their version of a computer existed. Okay. One of the interesting things too he said about this, this, this ship is that there was no wiring. Oh, so there was all these components, but nothing that he could tell connected any of them. Wi-Fi. Well, maybe. Could you imagine right. it was Bluetooth? <laughs> Whole ship's Bluetooth. It never works. Bob described the craft he worked on as having very, very small seats, almost like they were built for a child. It's the little greys. Mm-hmm. Below the flight deck were three gravity amplifiers. These are connected to gravity emitters. And this is actually important. I know it sounds like I'm going into super detail, but it actually is kind of vital to how this ship works. So gravity emitters on the lower level, which can rotate 180 degrees or 360 degrees, depending on the direction it was facing, to output a gravity beam or anti-gravity wave, and that the craft would then travel belly first into this distortion field. So we think of flying saucers as flying with the plate facing down, right? As we would see in those movies. The way he describes it is, in fact, that they would face the direction that they wanted to go. So the belly would face the direction it wanted to go, and then it would move in that direction. Okay. It could go slowly with belly down, but if they were going to go on a real trip, it would flip and and go belly first. The propulsion system was a metal sphere made from element 115 that you couldn't touch, literally. It would push you away like two magnets, but with no metal involved. So if you tried to put your hand on it, you couldn't. There was like a force field almost around this. Thing. I actually went out with a girl that was like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! So he 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 described it as being really awesome, but also incredibly fearsome at the same time. He further said that the propulsion system relied as a fuel on a stable isotope of one fifteen which allegedly generates a gravity wave that allowed the vehicle to fly and to evade visual detection by bending light around it. Which we know is theoretically possible. Which we know is theoretically possible. As mentioned earlier, no stable isotopes of element 115 have yet been synthesized. All have proven extremely radioactive, decaying in a few hundred milliseconds. But he he was saying if you were, if you're able to control the power that this thing has Mm -hmm. is unlike anything that we know to exist today. So we could potentially have not have to charge our cell phones like ever. Ever. Yeah. And he said it also doesn't emit any heat. So the it's super concentrated energy. 
I don't know if super is even an appropriate sidebar. And I, you don't have to know this. I'm just asking in case you came across it. Are they currently, is this a current area where science is trying to crack it? Yes. Okay. Where was I? Oh, here I was. Bob is able to describe in great detail how the ships are refueled. So he, he describes like this whole process where they take this element and it comes in these cylinder forms and they, they, they chop it into cones and then they cut triangular slices out of the cones and it's really detailed. And that's important in, in terms of determining how, truth, how truthful this guy is being. It reinforces his credibility. Because it's detailed. And you, if you're lying, you try to keep the details as simple as possible because it's easier to remember. Yeah, of course, liars generalize, right? That's right. So in the documentary, Bob's, Bob comes across as perplexed. If you look at his face, he comes across as perplexed by what he saw. He says, that technology does not exist at all. We do not know how to produce and control gravity, period. There's different physics at play. The laws of physics as we know them mean that every action has a reaction and with propulsion, something has to be exhausted. But these craft are reactionless. They have field propulsion. So they create a distortion in space and time in front of it. So space actually bends. And the, the analogy he gave, which I think is so great, he said, imagine you're on a mattress and you put a bowling ball on the mattress and you push down in front of the bowling ball with your fist. The bowling ball will roll to that area, the, 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 the space that you've created for it. Right, yes. Okay. So another way to, to sort of think of it, and this is... I'm not a physicist or even close, but I am a fan of this stuff, is if you took like a piece of paper and you uh, sort of bunched it up so that the two points came together and uh, the bottom part of the paper sort of dropped out, but you brought those two points together, you're kind of bending space to and bringing it towards you. It's kind of like how um, the Tesseract is described in A Wrinkle in Time with the string. Yeah, it, and again, founded in... Like, po this is possible physics. Okay. Right? Cool. Uh, wormholes are work under that same sort of premise. Instead of with a wormhole, instead of you're actually finding a hole that allows you to get from one place to another, sort of a shortcut, right? Yeah. This is like you're making your own shortcut. So the technology allows the user to control and produce gravity and as a result, bend space and, uh, bend space and alter time. And that's another thing that we know. Uh, for example, there's a, that, the theory that if you were to travel towards a a black hole in a spaceship and let's say it took you 20 years to get there you traveled right to the edge where it was safe to this black hole and returned that when you came back you would be far younger than everybody else that everyone else would have aged on the planet let's say you had been gone 40 years when you got back you would have discovered that 200 years had passed on planet earth why because the gravity is so strong near the black hole that time actually ceases to exist oh time is imaginary time is a, a human construct to understand the space that we're in okay like stephen hawking you you lost me there i i kind of get it but it's like woo. yeah that could be i actually would like to explore that more because that is weird stephen hawking <laughs> no poor stephen Hawking. no so if you had this technology you would essentially the user would be invincible and it would be a valid reason for why the technology is so closely guarded okay so think you know, being anywhere at any time, think the conventional weapons are useless because you could 
you would you could sort of have like the the, the like in Star Trek the the uh, force fields and stuff like that around objects. If you controlled gravity, mm-hmm. you control everything. Right. Of right? course. Yeah. So the the science of his claims is actually fairly sound. We can't control gravity with our technology, but if we could, it would probably not look too dissimilar to what he claims. Here's some other interesting things that he claimed back back in the late 80s, early 90s. He claimed that to get into the base, they had to use an infrared thumb reader. They These readers would analyze the bones in your hand, the density, shape, etc., through something called biometrics. At the time of his claim, the specific technology he described was not known to exist. Today, the machine not only exists and was apparently only invented recently, but it looks and functions exactly how Bob described it, like to a T. Fabulous. He did drawings of it too. So it's not like he's like, oh, no, no, yeah, that's what I meant. Like, no, no, it's what he described. Love it. In the documentary, he has shown a photo of the machine by the documentary maker, Jeremy Corbell. And the look on his face is fascinating. It is a look of pure vindication because this man has been told he's a liar, that he's a con artist for, you know, the last four, uh, 30 years. And the look on his face, like, oh, Amazing. It, it, it was really, it was an amazing moment. Another interesting thing that Bob uh, claimed is that, and he, he said this in an early TV interview, that he once saw through a window in a door of the lab, two men in lab coats talking to something small with long arms. He now says he doesn't know what that was. He doesn't think it was an alien. It might have been a doll because he, he described it, it was only a very quick glance. He was walking down a hallway, sort of looked to the side through this window and saw these two guys talking to something, but it was strange. While he says he never actually saw aliens during his time at S4, he does assert that they were there and said there was a nickname for them, the kids. Wow. Bob's mysterious past. We mentioned that near the top of the episode. Yes. So Bob says he has degrees in physics and electronics from Caltech and MIT. But the schools have no record of him ever attending there. He also says that he worked as a physicist at Los Alamos National Laboratory, but they have no record of him working there. Well, either. wait a minute. So if he went to MIT, somebody went to MIT with him. Yep. Classmates. So where are they? Friends of his, like people that he's still friends with, remember him. No, but like people who went there and said, yeah, he was in my physics class. Well, you know what? I thought that exact same thing, except this. First of all, you're in those schools. They're massive. If someone asked me, did this person attend university with you in 1998, would I remember? Okay, but I'll tell you something because I know this from my dad. So advanced scientific studies are exactly the same as going to theater school in that you're constantly involved with labs. Mm -hmm. And you might be in a lab group for an entire year. And trust me, those people become like your best friends. You know them for the rest of your lives because you are working four to five hours all the time on projects. There are people who are his friends who say they know he went there. But saying they know somebody. Well, they were, they, yep. Just saying, I'm just saying. I know. And that's what makes this so fucking frustrating, this story. But, but there's... There's more to it here than just than just this. Okay. So apparently never worked at Los Alamos National Laboratory. Okay. So it makes sense if he never went to MIT or Caltech, except he did work there. And there's proof, hard proof, and not one piece of evidence, but two pieces of evidence 
He worked there. Okay. A 1982 internal phone book from the lab discovered by George Knapp when he was doing his background check on Bob showed that he did, in fact, work there. But, like, did he run the canteen or... And that's exactly what a lot of people have said. Yeah, well, he might have been, like, a custodian, right? He could have been running the canteen, like you said. Except there's that second piece of evidence. As well as that phone book, there's also a newspaper clipping from Los Alamos News showing a profile the paper did on Bob. And it says right in the article that he worked there and was working on jet propulsion. Okay, so there you go. And you don't work on jet propulsion with a made-up degree. And you don't get in to what's considered one of the great labs in the world without credentials. So do you think the military expunged all that? I'll tell you in a little bit what I think happened. So if the if the government is lying about that, what else could they be lying about? Yeah, because we know the government never lies. And here's the thing. The high school that he says he went to, no record of him. The hospital that he was born in, no record of him being born there. His mother has proof, by the way, that he was born in like hard paper evidence. So they really erased him. They erased him. Right. They erased him. And who knows who they threatened? Yeah. Who knows what was said and done? And who knows what other people out there they've done the same shit to? It gets, it gets better. EG&G, who I uh, mentioned earlier, the hiring firm that did all the hiring for Area 51 and specifically for S4, also say they have, lo and behold, no record of him ever working there. Okay. But recently, an employee of EG&G and the person responsible for hiring for S4, a man by the name of Mike Thigpen, says he does, in fact, remember Bob being interviewed, and he also remembers hiring. There you go. Aha, vindication. In 1990, this is it, and this is going back to something you said earlier, but what else would he be doing in Las Vegas? But I think, and I think it's important to share everything. In 1990, Lazar was arrested for aiding and abetting a prostitution ring. Oh. This was reduced to felony pandering to which he pleaded guilty. So he's got some spiciness to him. Mm Mm-hmm. He was ordered to do 150 hours of community service, stay away from brothels, and undergo psychotherapy. Well, and I'll tell you why. There's a reason for that. Essentially, he was helping prostitutes to set up their own brothel. That's the way it's been explained. Well, good for him. Well, and that's he's not even embarrassed by it. I wouldn't be either. I think the sex trade should be legal. In court, when his past was brought up, he stuck to his guns which is something that's been brought up as well as this guy's not lying because it hurt him in court. Yeah. Hence the psychotherapy. Right. He's, he's stuck to, no, I went to Caltech. I went to MIT. I worked here. I worked there. And and they're like, but you didn't, buddy. Like you're, right? He stuck to his guns. Again, not only did he not profit from this story, he got hurt, literally hurt by sticking to his guns. Can on. I ask you this again? And I know I asked you earlier and you said you would address it. Is it still coming? Did nobody give him a basic physics exam? I'm coming to it. In 2006, Lazar and his wife were charged with violating the Federal Hazardous Substances Act for shipping restricted chemicals across state lines. The charges stem from a 2003 raid on United uh, Nuclear Scientific, which he owns, and their business offices, where chemical sales records were examined. 
United Nuclear pleaded guilty to three criminal counts of introducing into interstate commerce and aiding and abetting the introduction into interstate commerce banned hazardous substances. In 2007, United Nuclear was fined $7,500 for violating a law prohibiting, get this, the sale of chemicals and components used to make illegal fireworks. Wow. Okay. Apparently, this is actually verifiable under the Freedom of Information Act. He has been raided countless times by the government. Of course. And he owns and operates and is an acting scientist and engineer. So again, guy with no credentials, never went to school, went to a state college. There's one record of him having attended a state college. You don't do the things he does with that type of background. Okay. Everyone that knows him supports his story and says he is telling the truth. And at almost every turn, as new evidence pops up, it seems to suggest that he is telling the truth. Even tax records show the government deducted income tax from him during the time he allegedly worked there. Those records, though, have gone missing. Of now. course they have. Yeah. They claim to not know what happened and where those... that Yeah. Now, here's sort of where you were asking about. A retired police detective who now runs and owns a large security company put Bob through four separate lie detector tests and concluded that there was no attempt to deceive this was arranged by George Knapp, and George sort of explained to Bob, if you do this, if you volunteer to, mm-hmm. to put yourself up for this, this is going to help your claim. Right. So he's done it four times. But I want him to sit down and do a basic physics test to show that he can really do post-secondary physics. I can't, I don't think this is in my notes, but I can say this, that people have looked at the science that he's talking about. Yeah. And the detail that he's talking about, going, yeah, like it's advanced stuff. Okay, okay. So this guy felt uh, Bob was credible and Bob had volunteered for these tests in an effort to prove that he was telling the truth. Of course, that has done little persuade many. Mm -hmm. So here's the big thing. I mentioned the raids just a few moments ago. And this is a question that's come up multiple times and Bob gets really uncomfortable when it's asked of him. Oh, really? Did Bob get a piece of element 115 out of S4? Oh, okay. In the documentary, a conversation around the above was had in some woods with phones off and put far away. So in the documentary, you see this sort of a preamble conversation between the two of them Uh where Jeremy Corbell is saying, look, I'd like to ask you some questions. I know you're not comfortable with it. Right. We're going to put our phones away now and they do and then they walk further away. Uh He then says, did you take 115 out of S4? And then it stops. Because there was an agreement between the two of them that he wouldn't air that conversation, Mm -hmm. which was put into an encrypted file, if Bob wasn't comfortable. So it cuts after the question, though. Oh, which is so mean. That's so mean. Well, he wants, he wants, I mean, Jeremy Corbell's trying to say, I did ask this question, but he doesn't want to answer Uh, it. Or he did answer it, but I'm sworn to secrecy type thing. Okay. The next, so they never aired it. He never give, gave it a green light to air. Didn't make it into the documentary. However, the next day, Bob was raided by the FBI. Fuck, of course. For real. Right. Like this is happening in the documentary. Uh-huh. Yeah. This raid was verified. The government claimed they were there to search for toxic material a customer may have bought. Officially, records obtained through a Freedom of, Inve- of Information request show the raid was part of a murder investigation. Floods of people went through his workplace and searched the entire building. Apparently there were several different agencies there. Um, they marked everything off with the string with cubic meters. So literally 
every inch of that place was searched. Dear Lord. Top to bottom. Weird if all they wanted was an order form. Yeah, seriously. Right? Which is what they're claiming that they were looking for, I guess, with this murder investigation. Bob, to this day, won't confirm or deny on camera whether he got element 115 out. He now says, maybe this has been kept secret for a good reason. That there is a chance this won't make things great, but will in fact make things terrible. So what did Bob claim that we now know to be true? We know that S4 existed. Okay. EG&G had arranged to hire personnel, something that was long denied but is now confirmed, and that the man who was responsible for, for hiring him, Mike Thigpen, remembers him. He knew that the infrared hand scanners existed, that he worked for Los Alamos. Element 115 is now a known element. A stabilized version of it has not been officially created, but the current theory suggests it could be. This is a quote from Jeremy Corbell. The evidence that he is telling the truth outweighs the evidence that he is not. George Knapp claims that he even saw an old beta tape with an experiment on it that Bob was a part of in something called a cloud chamber where they were using 115 to bend light. Unfortunately, that tape no longer exists. Of course. And lastly... The Pentagon's recent released videos of an unidentified flying object, which seemed to fly eerily similar to Bob's description, flying extremely fast, able to make sudden movements that defy contra- uh, conventional aircraft capabilities, and even to find the wind and flying belly up, fit his description of how his ship flew, almost to a T. Um, but that Air Force pilot looked at what Bob Lazar has described and said, I think he's telling the truth too. Wow, okay, right? okay. So the, the story's... The story's mesh. Bob today. Today, Bob still works as a scientist and engineer. He says he has no motivation to lie. He doesn't want to be in the public eye and has made no money from this. This hasn't helped him. In fact, it has made his life a living hell. He wants people to know that the suppression of extremely advanced technology and unknown science is ongoing, but he's not really that interested in alien civilizations, and he believes it's besides the point. Some interesting final tidbits here. Okay. Former Canadian Defense Minister Paul Hellyer the so-called highest-ranked alien believer on Earth, says that extraterrestrials live among us and they refuse to share their advanced technology due to wars and pollution. Hellyer, who was the defense minister from 1963 to 1968, went public with his beliefs on aliens on, uh, in aliens on Earth in 2005. He believes there are 80 different species of extraterrestrials, some of... 80? 80 some of whom look just like us and they could walk down the street and you wouldn't know if you walked past one. He's quoted as saying, I would say that nearly all are benign and benevolent and they do want to help us. There may be one or two species which do not. Stanton Friedman, also a Canadian and a nuclear physicist and UFOologist, thinks that Bob is lying. And he's been interviewed specifically on this uh, topic. He's, I, th- I believe he's now passed. He's a really interesting guy. But he, he, he actually goes after a lot of people who claim to see UFOs mm-hmm. and debunks them because he feels that it weakens the argument for the real, the real things. If you, and I watched the whole thing. His reasons are, he goes back to the MIT Caltech. He goes, wow, if they you know, didn't exist and better, if it wasn't there, then there you go. And he brought up the exact thing you brought up. Why aren't his professors talking about him? Why aren't his classmates talking about yeah. him? But that's not necessarily a reason to say that he's lying. And how would you explain these other things? Anyway. Right. The last thing, and I think this is so fascinating. 
Does body language prove Bob Lazar actually worked on alien spacecraft at Area 51? Derek Van Shake, who is a body language and business expert, breaks down Bob's appearance on the Joe Rogan show, but also his earlier interviews. Okay. It is like an hour and 10 minutes, and this guy analyzes everything as he's talking. He says this, Bob does not show signs of lying. If Bob is lying... What he has done is extremely, extremely difficult. It's not only showing signs of lying, but at the same time showing authentic and convincing body language of what we would expect of someone that is telling the truth. Typically, someone who's lying stays away from providing deep details, which we mentioned earlier. At the end of it all, Derek says definitively that Bob is not lying. What would be more shocking than the United States government holding and testing alien spacecraft is if this guy is lying. There's nothing pointing to deception. No sudden defensive body language, self-comforting touches, no unexplainable incongruencies, nothing. He's not lying. For him to knowingly lie would make him the world's greatest actor, and that's just not really possible. Now, it is possible that he believes, and you and I talked about this in the lead up to the show, Right. That he believes that what he is saying to be true. Right. We talked about you tell the story enough times. You just sort of you. you, you. Yeah, there's a, there's a name for it, too. I came across it. It was in a podcast I listened to. And there's a name for it where if you come up with a lie and you tell that lie over and over and over. It's like people who have come up with lies about their past. Yeah. Who don't want people to know about their past or something or embellish. If they say it enough, they convince themselves it's true and it just becomes part of who they are. Right. Like deep down, they know they're telling a lie, but it's not really a lie to them anymore. So Derek Van Shake says that that's more possible than this guy's lie. Okay. He's he basically saying this isn't, and this guy, what this guy does actually, it's really interesting. I had never heard of him before. He looks at, he breaks these types of things down and they're often criminal cases. And he'll tell you, yep, he's lying. Yep, he's lying. Yep. He, his track record is normally saying, yes, this person is lying. Okay. In fact, he made a big deal of like, finally found someone telling the truth. Right. Okay. Okay. Good. Okay. So he says uh, it's a little bit more possible, but it's still far-fetched that he's telling a story that he believes to be true, but isn't. So first of all, he says, if he was delusional or mentally ill or a pathological lie or whatever, it wouldn't be isolated to just this one event. Mm -hmm. And in this case, it is. There's nothing else that Bob says that... It's not like that catch me if you can where I'm an airline yeah, pilot, yeah, I'm yeah. a doctor, I'm a da-da-da-da-da-da. Like, this is not his track, this is not his MO. And people who talk to him say so he's a really ordinary, quiet guy who just sort of does and his, his thing. Yeah, but well, I've seen him, and his story's been very unflinching, right? And everyone who meets him, not just friends, but George Knapp and now Jeremy Corbell, uh, you know, people like that that meet him are like, this. that's just not him. He's not a storyteller. There's also significant physical evidence. So witnesses saw the UFOs that he talked about on the highway, the 115, the hand reader, even his erased past. The fact that we, it's become quite apparent his past was erased. Yeah. Are all indicators that he's telling the truth. Further to that, Bob Uhouse, who was a former U.S. Marine test pilot and worked out of Area 51 and other secret locations for more than 40 years, and that's verified. Uh, he claims to have flown these flying discs, says... Bob Lazar did work at S4, that he saw him working there, and that Bob, what Bob is saying uh, is true and that he is not lying. Right on. So, my observations. Bob seems earnest, but I will admit at times looks nervous. 
Okay, that doesn't necessarily mean he's lying. I think I've seen, I've like I said, I've seen him. He's just, I think, a nervous kind of guy. Well, he's also talking about something that he doesn't like talking about, and that he's scared about. He doesn't want to die. He's being judged constantly, right? Yeah. At one point in the documentary, he talks about being hypnotized so that he can remember more details from his time at S4, and that lost me a bit. I thought that was a bit hokey and weird. Mm -hmm. He did this a long time ago, like in the 1990s. Bob says that no humans could have created the synthetic and controlled 115. And my question is, why not? Right. Right? It looks like we are. So I don't think that's definitive proof that it's alien, just because we he wasn't aware of previous discoveries. So much of his story pans out. It leads me to believe that what he's saying is true. And I, gosh, Riley, there's very few episodes that we've done where I... I have to really look inward and go, man, do I actually believe this? Yeah. Shackleton, the Shackleton one where I talked about the third man factor. Yeah. For me, that was one that I'm like, jeez, I think this is true. I think he's telling the truth. I really do. Wow. Ever since he released his claims back in 1989, the scientific community has been divided over what to think. Some of Lazar's claims are so outlandish they seem impossible. Yet, as the years have gone by, there appear to be small amounts of vindication. It is almost as if every time you want to write him off as a hoax and wacky conspiracy theorist, something he said existed back in 1989 suddenly exists today in the exact, exact form he mentioned. And the briefing docs, this was brought up by that Derek Van Shake guy. I thought this was interesting. Yeah. He may have read them and that may have actually happened. But you know what that might have actually been? A way of seeing who leaked information. Okay. We're going to show you this briefing book with this crazy stuff. Oh. But everyone gets a different version. Right. So it's just a, it's a test. So it's not that Bob's lying. He did read that. It's not necessarily true. That information (sighs) itself isn't necessarily true. I love that theory. Yeah. What makes Bob Lazar compelling in some ways is that he is different from other conspiracy theorists who come up with outlandish claims. He openly admits that he did not have access to every part of the ship and only knows what he does because he was reverse engineering the propulsion. You have to be cautious, of course, not to fall down the rabbit hole. There is nothing to validate his claims. At the same time, weird things keep popping up that seem to vindicate him. And that is my Bob Lazar story. I love Bob Lazar. I have a true affection for him. Look, in my profession, I'm not a professional like this Derek Van Sheik guy or the the police officer that did the lie detector stuff. But in my line of work, I've come become quite good at knowing when people are lying. Mm-hmm. There are certain tells that they mm-hmm. give, and and uh, or being a father, right, has has helped with that. Yes, my gut told me that with everything I've watched, and I watched a lot to prepare for this episode. This guy's telling the truth. Or at least he thinks he is. You know that I don't have a lot of affection for those ghost huntery types. That mm-hmm. they go into a room and they're like, I feel something here. I feel an incredible sense of loss. There's a soul, blah, blah, blah. Those people I don't feel any affinity for. And it just looks to me like hokey acting. Mm-hmm. But when I've seen Bob Lazar and everything you've told me, just reinforces that he's just a guy. He's not he's just a guy. one of those attention-seeking people who's like, look at me. Mm-hmm. I'm communing with mm-hmm. the ghosts. Mm-hmm. And there's a number of those people in the UFO community who have profited off their of claims. And you'll see the same freaking people. There's this one British guy that gets on my nerves. And he claims to have worked for British intelligence and stuff, but he he's in everything. Right. 
And he just looks, he has a look on his face of like, he's soaking this all in and loves his yeah, time in the limelight. Bob doesn't. That's that compelling enough. But then add in element 115. He named it in 1989. It was called element 115. Okay. He described it as it. So not only did he somehow know that there's going to be this element that's going to be discovered in 15 years, he knew what it did. How? Yeah, exactly. If he's a bullshitter, how? How is that possible? He's a very credible, so, credible, credible person. And I wanted, like I said before, like that famous poster that you could get from the X-Files uh, that said, I want to believe. This is one case mm-hmm. where I really want to believe. And for me, I, I go into um, sort of philosophical mode. What we're doing here, what our life experiences are. I know it freaks people, it freaks so many people out, but that whole concept of, life and time and how malleable time is you know and this is one cool thing that i've had explained to me time is always happening so everything that happened continues to happen and everything that will happen has already happened yes i know it's hard to wrap your head around that time's not a flowing river it's actually frozen our conscious consciousness is we we experience time flowing from one point a to point b but in reality, it doesn't work yeah. like that. Nope, I get it. Well, Bob Lazar. And he's still alive, right? Bob Lazar. He is. Yeah. Okay. And he keeps yeah. a low profile? Keeps a very low profile. Good man. Did he ever write a book? No. Nope. Good. That makes him even more credible. That's one of the things. He's been approached to write. He's been approached many times. To- apparently, he'll meet with people, but not on camera. Okay. And he'll meet with them if they just want to talk, but not for interviews or things like that. So, for example, I was trying to find if there was anything about the, his meeting with that Air Force pilot, uh-huh. and there's nothing because I don't. I think they literally just got together. Went 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 down to McDonald's and got a coffee and hung Maybe, out. Maybe, yeah. There's anecdotal information about it, but there's not like I was hoping. First of all, that it was going to would have been recorded, right. but it's not. So he's not looking for anything out of this. That'd be really messed up. Well, so let's leave this in the hands of the of the listener. It's up to you guys to decide how, what you think. Do you think he's telling the truth or do you think it's all a very elaborate fallacy? That is the end of our two-part. Our first, the first time we've done a two-parter, this was a longer episode. The longest in history, in our history. I think it was our longest in yeah. history. But I, And I hope that that's okay with you, good listener, because there's just so many cool details that I didn't want to leave out. I did actually leave quite a bit of extra stuff out that we might pursue another day with some slightly different stories. But Area 51, man, it's got a lot going on there, and there's a lot of stories. Nevada Desert has some stories to tell, period. They say there's a ton of bodies out there, like a ton, from all the Las Vegas mafia shit. Oh, yeah, there's yeah, a sure. ton of on the Hoover Dams out there. There's some shit mm-hmm. there, man. My friend mm-hmm. went there and said that there. Uh, she went for she went to Vegas, but she went for a drive out in the desert, and she said that there's wild donkeys out there, just donkeys oh. roaming around. I think that's hilarious. Weird wild donkey. You just don't expect things like that to be wild. Be a great band name. The for wild us. donkeys. Hi, I'm Dan's Riley. We're wild donkeys. Yeah, my name's Mitch. I'm the drummer. Yeah, Mitch. I'm Mitch. I'm the drama. Dude, I know a Mitch. You know, I knew, I knew a Mitch, but the only Mitch in the world right now that yeah, I knew the Mitches. only Mitch that anybody cares about right now is that fuckhead Mitch McConnell, who I've said for years, you look. You're exactly such an like. asshole. He looks like a turtle. He's a <laughs> smug. He's the smuggest. It's that permanent smirk. There's nothing worse than a person in a position of authority who has a smirk. 
And he has that smirk, that yeah. self-satisfied, just bitchy smirk. Anyway, we got to end this. His role in preventing nine. Yeah, you might want to cut this out. His role in preventing first responders to 9-11 getting the financial support they needed to deal with the fallout from that uh, was disgusting. And John Stewart played a big part in finally landing those people what they deserved. Okay. All right, my friend. Thanks very much for listening to me. Good listener. Thank you for being with us through this first half year of shows. And right, it's been half a year. Thanks so much for listening. We are on all the, the main social media platforms follow us, subscribe, rate us, do all those things that uh, will help us uh, get the message of our show out there. Uh, we appreciate your support. Thank yeah, you. absolutely. Um, we're going to keep coming at you. Just a, a note coming up. We're going to be taking two weeks off at Christmas. So between Christmas and New Year's, there won't be the weird. You're just going to have to live without it. But you can fill your life with um, your family and friends at a safe distance. And uh, yeah, enjoy the holidays. But we're coming back next week uh, with more. And um, we can't mm-hmm. wait. And thanks for being here for the first 25 episodes. And we'll see you 26. Yeah, literally. Well, I'm going to call this 25 part one and part two. But anyway, and we'll uh, we'll, uh, celebrate again when we hit 50. Good night, everybody. Good night. And don't forget, always listen to the weird and it's always a bad time somewhere. Life. Time. Life. Time is always happening. Time's not a flowing river, it's actually frozen. And everything that will happen has already happened.